my guest today is Sheila Gregoire, and we're going to talk about sexuality in the context of uh, conservative evangelicalism. Is that a fair characterization? I think so. Yes, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with me today, Sheila. Uh, you've got a book coming out next Tuesday, right? I do. The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies That You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. So that, that'll kind of frame uh, a lot of our conversation today. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of your, your work, your message, what drew me to it and, and Melissa to, to want to talk to you on the podcast is that it, we see it as this really important sort of microcosm of like more broadly the way that like authority and dominance is approached in this subculture. That was sort of the, the impetus for wanting to get your, your input in the, in, mm -hmm. you know, in how we're laying out the conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, if you can, if you can approach sex this way, then like, what can you not approach this way exactly. <laughs> of all things? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, my first, my first question, Sheila has to do with the way that sexuality is approached in purity culture, which is an element of this broader mm -hmm. uh, teaching on sexuality in conservative evangelical subculture. So a major impetus for purity culture is the idea that it's bad to separate sex from marital intimacy. That's why sex outside of marriage is bad. Uh, and yet, it seems that separating sex from marital intimacy is precisely what a lot of the teaching in this subculture does, uh, except within marriage itself, right? Yeah, so they've, absolutely. They've so they've managed to separate sex from marital intimacy within marriage. Yeah. And so they present sex as just this physical act that the purpose of which is to satisfy, satisfy or gratify male, male desire. Yeah. And what we did for the Great Sex Rescue, um, let me just back up for a second. So we surveyed 20,000 women, predominantly Christians, to try to figure out which evangelical teachings cause marital and sexual satisfaction to plummet. And it was a long survey. It was like half an hour long. We're so grateful for the 20,000 women who filled it out. So this is the biggest undertaking that's ever been done. And then what we also did was we took a look at the best selling evangelical marriage and sex books to see which of the teachings that we identified as harmful were in them. And we found it really disturbing how many books said things um, similar to this, like love and respect, for instance, talks about how a husband needs physical release through sexual intimacy. Like that is the purpose of sex. And his whole chapter on sex is directed at wives about how much husbands need sex and how you need to give them sex or they will have affairs. And it says nothing about her feeling pleasure, nothing about intimacy, nothing about anything. He just says to wives, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. So sexual needs are associated with being male, but then it's all about just physical release, which is not how the Bible talks about sex. You know, I love, um, I remember when I was about 13 years old, I'm sitting in a wooden pew in my church with all my junior high friends and uh, they still read the King James version back then. NIV wasn't out for another year, you know, <laughs> and they opened to Genesis <laughs> chapter four and the pastor read, 
and Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived unto them a son. And of course, we all start giggling, you know, and the pews start shaking. And my mother gives me the look like you stop right now. But we thought that was hilarious because God was embarrassed of using the real word. Like Adam knew his wife. But interestingly, the Hebrew word there is the same word that David uses when he says, search me and know me, oh God. Mm-hmm. You know, God is telling us that knowing God is telling us that knowing is a big part of sex. It's the point. (laughs) It's not just physical. It's this deep longing to be truly connected. And I don't see that in a lot of our evangelical resources. Instead, I just see, do not deprive him. He needs this so much. You need to do it every 72 hours, or he's going to be tempted to lust, tempted to watch porn or have an affair. And it's going to be your fault. Yeah. And it it really equates male sexuality with using women instead of wanting to be truly intimately connected the way that I think the Bible talks about it. So I've almost said it, it, it's like they think that male sexuality is objectifying women. That is, that is what male sexuality is. And so the point of your sexuality is to make sure that you only objectify one woman for the rest of your life. When I, come up against these these kinds of uh, uh, teachings about how women should understand and and really how men should understand the context around sexuality there's no well first of all it just seems boring <laughs> right? uh, th- there's it's like it's like god forbid you should actually approach sex in such a way that you should try to entice your spouse to like want to do it. (laughs) Yeah. I I know. And I I don't mean to pick on love and respect so much, but they have a perfect quote about that too. Um, He, Emerson Egrich, the author tells the story of a mother talking to her daughter and the daughter doesn't want to have sex with her husband. And the mother says, why would you um, deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? And I just think that's really funny because why would someone who actually thinks women should feel good during sex emphasize sex's brevity above all else? <laughs> like, yeah. if, if the selling point to a woman is, hey, it doesn't take very long, then maybe you're doing it wrong. And Quite yeah, possibly. You know, um, and, and that's often what's missing is even when they talk about um, spicing things up or whatever, it's still often done in the context of husbands will only feel intimate with you and will only feel close to you through sex if they know that you enjoy it. And so for women only, uh, which is a book by Shanti Felton written for women only, um, you know, tells women, you need to, you need to show him that you want to do this, even if it's not feeling good physically, you know, encourage him and let your words be heart words and things like this. And, and there's no telling women, you know, if it doesn't feel good for you, you're, it's, you're okay. It's, it's okay to speak up and ask him to do something different. It's just, no, he needs to feel like you want him and that you think he's good at this. Wow. So that, so the, the man is in control of the situation, uh, at least in his mind and you're just patronizing him. Yeah. And it's just, it's really problematic. And I think that's why we see the orgasm gap that we do, which, and this was one of the big reasons that we wanted 
to survey women. Like a lot of people say, why didn't you survey men? Well, we actually have surveyed men since writing the book because we're going to do another book for men later. But our purpose in writing this one was the fact that there is such a large orgasm gap. And the majority of problems in the sexual arena in marriage stem from the fact that either women don't like it or women don't want it. (laughs) And if we could close that orgasm gap, we could probably fix both of those problems. So, so that's what we were really focusing on. And, you know, around, you know, 95% of men orgasm almost always or always during a sexual encounter, but only about 49% of women do. So that's a large orgasm gap. And yet I asked on, on Twitter last year, you know, which message ladies have you heard more often in church circles? Do not deprive your husband or women's sexual pleasure matters. And of course, you know, do not deprive one, but it didn't just win. It was overwhelming. It was 95% out of the 1500 responses said the message that they get most often is do not deprive your husband. I'm surprised that there are 5% of response. <laughs> I want to go to those churches. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Now I've heard you, I've heard you comment on the way that this notion of not depriving one's spouse is misconstrued. I wonder if you might talk about that. Yeah. So it, it comes from the first Corinthians seven, three to five, those verses. And those verses start off by saying that the husband has to fulfill his marital duties to his wife. So it actually starts off with the husband's um, responsibility you know, and then the wife has to fulfill her duties to her husband. And then um, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to the wife. The wife's body does not belong to her, but also to the husband and do not deprive each other, you know, except for a time and by mutual consent that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting, but then come together again so that you will be tempted by your lack of self-control. And that's not a perfect quotation, but it's something like that. And those verses are talked about repeatedly in almost all of our evangelical literature and the way it's phrased is ladies you're not supposed to deprive him and you know kevin lehman said uh if you're not willing to have sex every 70 every 48 to 72 hours for the rest of your life you shouldn't get married and sometimes you're going to feel like you have to force yourself and like you'd rather shove him off of you but this is part of fulfilling your marital duty and and you know lots of lots of books talk about marital duty. But if we back up just for a second, (laughs) what is it that we aren't supposed to deprive each other of? The way that the books often talk about it, it's that we're not supposed to deprive each other of intercourse. But is that really the biblical way of looking at that? Because in 1 Corinthians 7, it's completely mutual. Everything that he gets, she gets as well. And in Roman times, husbands had complete authority over their wives' bodies to the extent that they could murder their wives if they chose to, and there would be no penalty. And yet in the midst of that culture, Paul walks in and says, wives, you have authority over your husband's body. That Mm -hmm. was revolutionary. So the whole point of that passage is mutuality. Mm -hmm. And we know that sex is supposed to be intimate, as we already talked about. And here we also know that it's supposed to be completely mutual. Now, if we go back to that orgasm gap that I was talking about, and we look at the women who can reach orgasm, only around 40% of them can reach orgasm through intercourse alone. Now, the rest of them need 
a lot of foreplay or they find another route to orgasm is far more reliable. And that's, that's normal. That's the way women's bodies are built. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. However, the way that we often define sex is intercourse. And that puts women at a disadvantage because this is not as pleasurable to them. So if we're saying that 1 Corinthians 7 means that wives cannot deprive their husbands of one-sided intercourse, then that's sort of an oxymoron because women are already being deprived. You know, it's supposed to be completely and it, mutual. And in the evangelical and it runs church, counter to the, to, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I was just going to say, in the evangelical church, women are the ones being deprived by the numbers. And if we read that, what Paul's saying there, as women shouldn't deprive their spouses of one-sided intercourse, then that would run counter to the whole spirit mm -hmm. of what's going on in the context there. Right. But that those verses are used like every heart restored, which is a book in the every man's battle series says that first Corinthians seven promises husbands physical release or, you know, promises husbands that their sexual needs will be met just as first Peter three, seven promises that wives should be treated with honor and dignity or something. And it's just so strange because why would they jump out of that verse to talk about what wives are promised and go to a whole different verse when wives are promised sexual release and sex, their sexual desires being fulfilled in the very verse that men's are. And yet they ignore the whole bit to women and they jump somewhere else because in our books, we're routinely told that what women need is affection and communication and love, whereas what men need is sex. And so you know, Emerson Egridge says, women, if you want, if you want your husband to have, to reach your heart, you need to give him access to your body or something like that. Like, and, you know, Shanti Feldon in For Women Only says, when you don't have sex with him, it's kind of as if he didn't talk to you for a week. You know, just as you really need, you really need talking and you really need that communication, but what he needs is sex. And so it's this split when there is no research that shows that. Yes, we have different libidos, um, but it isn't always that the man has the higher libido either. Now, when you refer to research, I've, I've I, I can sense that one kind of reaction you're going to get is, well, research, <laughs> we've got the word, right? Or something yeah, to that effect. And, exactly. and one thing I've heard you say that I think uh, comes in here, right, is that the, the, the word itself, the, the Bible itself provides us with grounds for using our brains, <laughs> right? And, look, and, and uh, so could you say a bit about uh, looking at the fruit, yeah. So Jesus very clearly said that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. And he said that you will be able to know that you're my disciples because of your love. Like love is something which is supposed to characterize the Christian life. And we're supposed to have this good fruit. We know that following Jesus does not harm when we follow Jesus, our lives become characterized by wholeness. <laughs> our lives become emotionally, spiritually, physically healthier. And yet what we found in our survey is that following many of the teachings, which are common in evangelicalism, actually results in harm, in actual harm. And one of the most, uh, one of the most stark ones which to me is the saddest, I think, and, and also the most personal, because this is part of my story as well, is that the obligation sex message. So this idea that 
a wife is obligated to meet her husband's needs or to have sex when the husband wants it is as implicated in or, or increases the rate of sexual pain to almost the same extent as if she had been abused. So a lot of people don't even know the word vaginismus. Um, it, I say that I always need to define it. So I'm gonna define it here for your listeners. But vaginismus is a condition where the muscles of the vaginal wall contract to make, which makes penetration very painful, difficult, and in 7% of, of women that we surveyed, even impossible. Conservative religious women, which includes evangelicals, suffer from vaginismus at twice the rate of the general population. And, the, and research has known this for, I, I, we've seen journal articles from the 70s documenting this. If you talk to any pelvic floor physiotherapist, they'll tell you that religious conservatism is a marker of risk for vaginismus. So this is our problem. And the obligation sex message essentially says to women, your needs don't matter. What matters is his needs. And that is the opposite of intimacy because what intimacy says is we both matter. We're gonna know each other in the bedroom. We're gonna know each other. That's what, that's what this is about. But the obligation sex message says, I don't want to know you. I just want to use you. And that is the same, that is the same message that sexual abuse gives us. And so our bodies literally interpret the obligation sex message as trauma. Mm. And wow. yet this is what we are teaching. You know, women, women in their 20s and 30s are far more likely to experience vaginismus than men are to experience erectile dysfunction. And yet we all know what erectile dysfunction means. Very few of us know the word vaginismus. I, I find that profound. That Yeah. Go yeah, when, when, we, when we looked at, this is, this has long been known in the medical community that uh, research on vaginismus is almost non-existent. Like it's very, there's very little of it. Whereas there's so much research on erectile dysfunction. So if you were to go to medical journals and do a word search, you would find like 10 times as many articles on erectile dysfunction. So we looked mm -hmm. at, you know, focus on the families website, gospel coalition, all kinds of big Christian websites. Again, they all had articles on erectile dysfunction. They didn't talk about vaginismus. Focus on the family had one article on postpartum pain, because that's another big issue for women is pain um, after giving birth. But it really didn't say much about it. And, you know, our, our surveys found that 30% of women experienced either postpartum pain or vaginismus to the point that that penetration was really painful. And, you know, over 20% had had vaginismus at some point. That's a very large number. And a lot of our messages are highly implicated in it. The obligation sex message. I believe the all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. I believe that one is as well. And then we have some other theories, but what's really cool. I, I want to get back to what you said about research. You know, the book, Love and Respect by Emerson Eggerich. And, and what he's saying is that women need love and men need respect. And that's become just everybody believes it in the evangelical world. Well, that was based on a survey that was done by Shanti Felton of 400 men. And they were asked, would you rather be alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? And I think it was like 70, 75% chose alone and unloved. And so they used that to say, so men would rather 
be unloved than disrespected. So what men really need is respect. Now, I won't even get in to the problems with a double-barreled question in that survey, because you don't know if they're reacting to the uh, alone or unloved or the inadequate or the disrespected. You shouldn't, it's not good survey form to have two answers in one question because you don't know what they're, what they're choosing. But they never asked women. And when other people asked women using that exact same question, women tended to choose alone and unloved in virtually the same numbers. The more educated the women were and the more they worked in the workforce, the higher the rates were. So they built this entire empire on love and respect was based on an, an invalid survey question in which they never asked women. They just assumed a gender difference that wasn't there. That is the quality of the research that is currently being done in evangelicalism. And I don't think that's adequate, which is why we decided we were going to survey 20,000. We have a, you know, we have an epidemiologist, my co-author, Joanna Sawatsky, and then Rebecca Lindenbach, who's my daughter, um, is trained in psychometrics. So she designed the survey. Joanna ran all the stats and we've just been approved. We just have ethics uh, approval so that we can start submitting to peer-reviewed journals. So our first few articles are going to be on sexual pain and evangelicalism. So we want to get peer-reviewed because it's about time that evangelicalism does this properly. I mean, in, in Kevin Lehman's book, Sheet Music, he never quotes any peer-reviewed stuff. Every now and then he quotes some article from Red Book magazine. But then you're reading this book and you're thinking, this is just all about you and your wife having sex. I don't really want to know about you and your wife having sex. I don't really want to know that you call your penis Mr. Happy. That's weird. Like, that's weird. And I would just prefer to hear about stuff that's been actually studied properly. So, so the, the obligation sex message and the, the sort of one-sidedness, uh, it seems to me to be a, a microcosm of a kind of authoritarian approach to, to male headship more broadly that, mm -hmm. that transcends just the conversation about sex. The, the idea being that there's, there's really no need to negotiate or accommodate. There's no dialectic, right? There, in fact, there's no real leadership of any kind. It's just, you know, this is, this is what the man wants. And so this is what's gonna happen, right? And there's no, there's no question of like, why don't you actually entice whether it's your spouse or people you're purporting to lead, whatever, like what, why is there, why is there no need to get people to like want to do what you're trying to entice it? Like, I don't know if you, if, if your wife doesn't seem to be interested in intimacy, it maybe think like, okay, effectively, cause in this subculture, right. It's, it's, it's uh, the teaching often is that, you know, the man goes to work and the wife stays home and, Mm -hmm. And so on. And I, I certainly don't mean to denigrate that at all. As it happens, my, my wife stays home with our son. It was actually her idea. I was resistant to it at first. So I'm not, I, I don't mean to say that that's not a you know, perfectly suitable arrangement, but there is this idea out there that that is the arrangement and that's how mm -hmm. things must be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guy goes to work for eight hours or whatever, and his wife is effectively working like 18 hour days, mm -hmm. doing the dishes, watching the kids, cleaning, like all of this. And like, no, of course she's not interested and she's exhausted. She wants to go to sleep, yeah. right? Yeah. So I don't know, man, help out. 
and then and like try a bit of romance like just see where it leads yeah yeah well it's it's kind of funny what you said about your wife staying home because one of the other things we found is uh when when couples believe in gender differences like that there are certain roles that you should have marital satisfaction goes down when couples act out traditional gender roles, it's not a bad thing unless you believe you're supposed to do that. Mm. So, you know, when couples think she should be staying at home, your marital satisfaction goes down. So this whole idea of gender roles is highly problematic and, and does result in some, we've got some other interesting findings about that. But here's something else that the evangelical world talks about all the time. You have to have sex every 72 hours, the 72 hour rule. I wrote that down, 48 to 72 hours. What, what, what on earth? Yeah, and, and, but the 72-hour rule, like anyone who's ever been on Christian blogs, who's ever been on any women's conferences, like this is everywhere. Um, uh, it's in multiple books. You know, every 72 hours, you should be filling up his cup. Um, even during your period, Sheet Music talks about how your period is a really difficult time for him. And so that's when you should be using hand jobs um, or the postpartum phase is a really difficult time for him and he could be ready to climb the walls. So you should give him oral sex. <laughs> the postpartum phase is really difficult for him. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's outrageous. I haven't, yeah, you've done deep dives into some pretty dark territory it sounds like. I know it gets really depressing I know I can we're, we're gonna get darker in a minute too but anyway this 72 hour rule it's throughout our literature and I was following footnotes trying to figure out where it came from like I've got like 10 books on on the counter you know and I'm like this one's referencing that one and that one's referencing that one and that one's referencing that one I'm trying to figure out where it came from and we finally found it was in a book by James Dobson from 1977 that's where it started but we looked at the medical literature so we tried to find, okay, in peer-reviewed medical literature, is there like a magic 72-hour number that says that men need sexual release at 72 hours or else they're going to be really uncomfortable and unable to treat you well and really grumpy? There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. In fact, what medical literature finds is that um, masturbation rates uh, among teenage boys and in their 20s, if you are, is culturally dependent. So the the amount of time needed between or desired, whatever you want to say, uh, between sexual release varies culturally. So it's not even biological. So the 72 hour rule is not a thing. Now I'm not saying I'm not saying people shouldn't have sex every 72 hours. Like we did we did find that. Um, more, the more frequently you have sex in general, the better your marriage tends to be. Now that's a chicken and egg thing. Cause we also found the better your marriage is the more frequently you have sex. So I'm not against frequent sex. I think, Hey, if God made something to be amazing, like go for it. This is wonderful. That's what we should be aiming for. That's what the whole book is about. But when we do it because we have to, it changes the very nature of sex because you're no longer having sex because you want to have some deep intimate experience or because you want to feel good, you're having sex because he needs to use you and that changes it. And that makes it much worse. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the cultural component to this because one of the big claims that culture warrior types make, right, is that we want to have this certain kind of biblical approach to various things. And it seems to me that a lot of what they say about sexuality is just like, the, the, like the, the isolation of the, the physical act from the surrounding context is just Hollywood. Like that's not even, that's not real life at all. And it's not, there's nothing biblical about it. No, it's really pornographic. And you see it most, like every man's battle is a really good example of that. Because 
what, what every man's battle says, and it, it's, it's a highly disturbing book, uh, sold, I think that series sold 4 million copies and, you know, it talks about how lust is every man's battle. And so the way that you defeat lust is you take all of your sexual energy and you put it on your wife. And, and she says once, or he says, once you quit lust cold Turkey, she can be a merciful vial of methadone for you. And, and it says it in a different, it says it twice that she could be methadone for you. So it's saying that women are the methadone for their husband's sex addictions. And if we dig down into that a little bit deeper, methadone is the substitute that it is given to people who are trying to weed themselves off of serious opioids, an opioid addiction. And methadone is not what you want. Methadone is what satiates you so that you don't go get the opioid. So it's saying to the wife, okay, you're not really what he wants. What he really wants is to watch that woman naked. But what he's going to do is he's going to use you so that he's satiated so that he doesn't go and do something bad. And this is supposed to be a good message. And then, and then they say like, before he might've been coming to you for five bowls of sexual gratification a week. But once he quits lust all and all of his energy is on you, now he might be coming to you for 10 bowls of sexual gratification a week. And she will find this vaguely pleasant. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and never mind that like methadone is actually bad for you. I know. <laughs> but like, right? Is this like, necessary evil? Yeah, but think about what that is saying to women. It's saying, okay, so he's, he's objectifying all of these women and he's lusting after all of these women. And the way that they define the sin of lust is that it's against his purity. But the sin of lust is not a sin because it's against his purity. The sin of lust is a sin because it diminishes the woman who is made in the image of God and objectifies her. It makes her into an object that is used for his sexual gratification. That is the real sin of lust. But that's not the way they put it. You know, they talk about the sin as being against his purity. They even, they even have a story in every man's battle of a youth group volunteer man in his thirties with three kids who was flirting with a 15 year old and eventually had sex with her. I wouldn't normally use the word had sex because a 30 year old who is a youth leader cannot have sex with a 15 year old. That's called rape. (laughs) Um, It's statutory rape. It's clergy sexual abuse. And it was also non-consensual because she went in and told her parents right away. You don't tell your parents right away if it was consensual. It's non-consensual in three different ways. Like it's just, it's, it's atrocious, but they portray him as being like, like he is the sympathetic one in this story. We're told how she dressed. We're told how she was flirting with him. We're told all of these things. And he is a sympathetic one because this poor guy, he may now have ruined his life because, oh my gosh, the parents might hand him into the police. And this is why guys, we need to fight against lust. So this doesn't happen. And they're ignoring, they never once talked about the implications on her. What book is this? Every man's battle. Oh my goodness. That is so toxic. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of what I'm thinking about in, in this context is issues in the SBC specifically around abuse. And Mm -hmm. that, that, that just fuels that whole, the, the, the narrative. Yeah, because women are never described as the victims of men's lust in every man's battle. He is the victim of his own lust because now he's wrecked his purity. And so she also needs to be the solution by having sex more. And all you're doing is still treating women as objects. You don't defeat lust by seeing women as objects. And this whole bouncing your eyes thing 
that every man's battle tells guys they're supposed to do, like never look at a woman, right? Bounce your eyes. That still sees her as an object. It still sees her through the lust mindset, through the pornographic mindset, that she is simply a collection of body parts. The way that you defeat lust, the peer-reviewed research has shown, the way to defeat lust is to see a woman as a whole person. But that's not what they're teaching. And so what they're teaching is not working and will never work. But, you know, this whole concept of, of, of rape, too, shows up in so many of our resources, and it's not even named. His Needs, Her Needs by Willard Harley it describes a 32-year-old executive who's really frustrated because his wife never wants sex. And, and he says, I feel like I'm always begging her or even raping her. And then in The Act of Marriage by Tim Beverly LaHaye, which was the book that anyone who was married, you know, between 1976 and, let's say, 1995, like, you read that book. Um, I certainly did. Most pastors today, that was the book that they were given before they were married. And that book has the story of this young girl is getting married and her aunt Matilda comes to her and tells her that sex is terrible and she needs to be careful. And Tim LaHaye says, isn't this awful that Aunt Matilda did this? But Aunt Matilda had a really bad view of sex because on Aunt Matilda's wedding night, her husband held her down and raped her while she was kicking and screaming. And this happened throughout their marriage. And this poor clumsy farmer who was 20 years older than Aunt Matilda, you know, he was equally unhappy as his wife. So Tim LaHaye calls the rapist husband equally unhappy as his rape victim and talks about Aunt Matilda as being the antagonist in that story because she told her niece that sex was bad. That book went through four different editions. We read the last one, which was updated in the late 90s sometime. So through four different editions, nobody thought maybe we should take that anecdote out. This is just something I wanted, I wanted to point out in case it's not clear to the listener. So you keep referring to peer-reviewed research and mm-hmm. you keep referring to looking through the footnotes of these different texts mm-hmm. that you're sort of breaking down. Uh, for those who haven't had the experience, I, now I don't pretend to have done anything like the, the deep dive that you've done, but I've uh, just out of curiosity looked into a few things published by certain people and looking through the footnotes and trying to figure out what, what the sources are for things, is a, it's a bit like you know, there's this concept in literature and film of the MacGuffin, mm-hmm. right? This thing that's like held out as the big mystery right? And you're eventually going to get to the end and figure out what the solution is. And it just never comes. Right? <laughs> that, that, that's when you're trying to track down, like, where did they get this? You will be disappointed 100% of the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because there's, there's no, there's no peer reviewed anything standing behind it. No. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. you know, they saw something in a television commercial yeah. and that's where the idea came from. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. And just and just for all listeners, like what we mean by peer reviewed is that it's been in academic journals, you submitted through an academic uh, research organization where you had to follow certain guidelines, you had to pass certain tests. And then in order for your article to get accepted, people in that field had to read it and say, yes, this is this is good research. So, you know, it's it's something more than just hey, this is what I think. And that's why we're pursuing that as well. We, just, we didn't do it in time for the book coming out, but this is going to be like our 10-year project. We, we have about 15 articles we'd like to write. And we're, we're going with some pelvic floor physiotherapy journals and different ones too. So, yeah. Wow. 
that's that that's I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but that's such important work that you're doing. It, it's well, you know, you know why it's important, but, yeah. but just just to correct just to correct the false narratives or to yeah. push back on the false narratives that yeah. contribute to this just very dark aspect mm-hmm. of of the subculture. You know what gets me really angry too is that the secular world is actually doing this quite well. Hmm. Christians always talk about how the secular world has marriage all wrong and we're the ones who are preserving marriage. But we, um, another aspect of our project was we, we took the, the 10 best-selling marriage books and we took six iconic sex books. Of the 10 best-selling marriage books, three of them never really addressed sex. So we just we discarded those from our, from our research. So we had 13 of the best-selling Christian books in this area. And we created a 12 point rubric of healthy sexuality teaching. So the most you could get was 48. We scored on zero to four. So you get 48 points. And then we got the best-selling secular marriage book, which is John Gottman, seven principles for making marriage work. We put Gottman on our rubric as well. He scored 47 out of 48. Love and respect scored zero, literally zero. Hmm. You know, uh, every man's battle scored nine. Although Rebecca, my daughter and I disagree on that. I scored it a nine. She thinks it should be a five, but whatever. Anyway, (laughs) the 13 books, there was one word that didn't occur in any of those 13 books, but John Gottman had many pages on it. And that word was the word consent. Hmm does not appear. Now, I, I do need to say there were books which gave the, um, the idea of consent. They just didn't use that word. So Boundaries in Marriage, great book, definitely says that women should set boundaries and you know that you can take sex off the table. That's legitimate. So I'm not trying to say that none of our evangelical books have a good message about that because I would say Boundaries in Marriage certainly does. But it, it just is, is problematic when we don't even have a word for, for this in the evangelical world in marriage. Well, the, the, it's the concept that, yeah, this gets to the broader point about how authority is or, or male headship is characterized, right? It's not, it's, it, consent has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. It's yep. you just submit yep. to whom the guy's in charge. Why? Well, because they're the guys who are going to tell you what the Bible means. Yeah. And then you just do it. Yeah. And we know so many women grew up with these ideas and what we're just hoping in the book, I mean, I'm making the book sound so sad. Like it actually, (laughs) it's, it's actually quite a fun book. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to read in parts, but what people have told us is I laughed, I raged, but I cried. But in the end, it's like, this is the most hopeful thing I've ever read because I feel seen and I feel validated. And I think when, when couples grow up with these messages, it's inevitably going to have a bad impact on your marriage and on your sex life. And so we're trying to give this book as an antidote for all of these negative messages, you know, um, have more sex so he won't watch porn boys are going to push your sexual boundaries. So girls, you need to be the gatekeeper. Um, You know, all these messages really hurt, end up hurting us. Even if we believe them as teenagers, before we even meet our husbands, they, they hurt us later on. And, 
you know, so let's get back to what Jesus really says about mutuality and intimacy and, uh, and all that. And that's how we find our way forward. I want, I want to be respectful of your time. Are there things that I haven't asked about or haven't touched on that you, that you really would like to emphasize? I think one of the good things that we did find, and I, and I really want to make this clear, is that men are not the problem. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are accusing me of man bashing, which I find really odd because all I'm saying is that male entitlement to sex should not be a thing. And we should have consent in marriage and women's sexual needs matter as well. Um, I don't think that's man bashing. And in fact, I think that saying all men don't lust, <laughs> you know, lust is a battle that you can win. Most men are honorable. I think that's actually a very high view of men. And the idea that, that anyone who says that men don't need to lust or that men can resist sexual urges, that that means that you're man bashing. I think that's a very toxic view of what masculinity is, you know? Um, but what we found over and over again was that in our focus groups too, women who got over this, like women whose sex lives were really being hurt by the obligation sex message or this idea that if I, I don't have sex every 72 hours, he's going to watch porn or all of that. The person who helped them, the one who helped them get over it was the husband, because often the husband didn't believe this stuff. Often he didn't even know the wife believed this stuff because women are taught this far more than men are. It's women who go to women's Bible studies where you read these books. It's women who go to women's conferences where we're told this. You know, men may get yelled at about pornography, but they don't tend to be told all these other things. Um, the purity culture message was far more put on girls than it was on guys. And so a lot of men didn't even know their wives were believing this stuff. I remember one story I thought was hilarious. Um, this woman got married and she dutifully every 72 hours initiated with her husband. And their sex life was okay. But a few years in, she started feeling like, he just doesn't desire me. He never initiates. Like he never chases me. And so she sat down and she said how hurt she was and how she felt like she had to do all the work and that he didn't really, you know, love her in that way. And he said, I'm just trying to keep up to you. And she said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, it's like you watch sex every three days. And she said, well, no, you do. Cause you're a guy. And he said, no. And so they, they laughed about this and they decided they would just one, when one of them wanted sex, they would initiate and they settled into about once a week mm. and they're both perfectly happy, but he had no idea that this is what she was doing because she was afraid he would watch porn if she didn't have sex. Cause that's what she was taught. And, you know, it was her husband who set her free. And we have story after story of that, of when women were finally able to talk to their husbands and their husbands said, I don't want duty sex. I don't want you to feel obligated. If we're ever doing anything that you don't want to do, we're just going to stop. And when women felt like they had the freedom to stop, it was like their libido suddenly kicked in. And that was the key to so many women becoming orgasmic after not being orgasmic for years was realizing I have agency again. I have the ability to say no, because unless you can say no, you can't really say yes. Mm. 
And that given when husbands gave them the ability to say no, because they never knew she didn't have it. This is the thing. So many husbands never know that their wives don't feel it because they don't realize what their wives have been taught. And so we found so many guys who are just amazing. And I, I don't think that our book is man bashing at all. I think our book is saying, hey, both of you have been really ripped off by our Christian evangelical resources and we need to do better. That's really what I'm calling the church to do. You know, and um, I got started with this because this whole project, because I read Love and Respect two years ago after never reading a Christian marriage book, even though I write in this area at my blog to love, honor and vacuum. I've been writing there every, every day for years, 12 years, I think. Um, I've written lots of sex books, good girls guide to great sex, 31 days to great sex, but I had never read other books because I didn't want to plagiarize. And I sat down in, in 2019 and I actually read love and respect. And I was so horrified by what it said that I wrote about it. And I, and I had hundreds of women write to me saying how that book enabled abuse in their marriage. And so we sent a report to focus on the family because I knew focus. I'd been on focus on the family three times. I knew them. I thought they'd listen because they promote it and they co-publish it and they ignored me and they ignored all the women. And when they finally did reply a year later, when I threatened to go public, they said they believed that love and respect um, is a biblically sound, empowering message for wives. And remember love and respect scored zero on our healthy sexuality rubric. But when we heard that, we decided that they might be able to ignore hundreds, but we hope they can't ignore 20,000. And so that's why we did this project was because there's such bad teaching in the evangelical world. And we ended the book by saying, we don't want to be the final word on this. There's so much more to learn about vaginismus, you know, about how we advise couples to handle the honeymoon and the wedding night. If you're both virgins, like there's so much more to say, you know, about how to navigate libido differences. And so we just call people to more research and to more biblically sound interpretations of a lot of these things. And let's pay attention to what's actually going on on the ground, because if our advice is leading to terrible marital outcomes, then maybe it's time to examine what we're really saying. Cause when you follow Jesus, it doesn't hurt. That's powerful. Sheila, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I, I wish you well with the book. I can't wait to get a copy and that's out next Tuesday. Next. Yes. Uh, Tuesday, March 2nd, great sex rescue. And of course you can find it anywhere, Amazon, christianbooks.com, anywhere, um, or show up at to love, honor, and vacuum.com. And uh, there'll be lots there. There's links to my orgasm course, all my other sex books, everything you can want. So, And of course, follow Sheila on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> In addition I get, I get uh, on Twitter. I have such different personalities everywhere. Like Instagram, I'm like nice and happy. And Facebook, I'm sort of uncontroversial. And Twitter, I'm just like burn, baby, burn. <laughs> so. Well, that th no, that's your. Th those are those. That's an app description of the different cultures. I mean, that's basically yeah. what they are. Yeah. When my <laughs> wife's mom got on Twitter a, a little bit ago, she was like, "Mom, this is not Instagram. Like, I don't even know if you can." <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 twitter's like it's like varsity like we're not like they're we're not playing around this is unvarnished <laughs> yeah well i'm so grateful for your time thank you so much well thank you it's great to join you because i really have enjoyed interacting with you on twitter too so it's fun to meet you <laughs> mm -hmm.